Welcome to Had a Magical Day, the podcast about Disney parks that's like taking a vacation in the middle of your day. Hello, everyone. We'd like to welcome you to another exciting episode of Had a Magical Day. And when I say exciting episode, I am not kidding, because today we have a very, very special guest here that we're so excited to have. It is, um, he's been on the Antiques Roadshow. He's a true expert in all things Disney collectibles and, and other things. And we'd like to welcome our good friend, Gary Summers, to our show today. Aloha. Aloha. Welcome, <laughs> Gary. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, this episode will be aired, I think, about a week before you get an appearance at the New England Comic Con. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? The Northeast Comic Con is, uh, and Collectibles Extravaganza is July 2, 3, and 4 at the Boxborough Regency Hotel. It's a large uh, collectors and fan event featuring a lot of Disney, but a lot of pop culture of all sorts. Philo Barnhart, the original animator and character designer of Ariel and Ursula and uh, many other characters will be there along with uh, Billy West, the voice of Futurama and Ren and Stimpy and Space Jam. Uh, Many, many. Oh, yeah. Vincent Martella, the voice of uh, Phineas and Ferb will be there. Uh, Many other uh, artists, um, creators, writers, uh, celebrities and musicians, including NRBQ, my favorite band. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they were the house band on The Simpsons for three seasons. <laughs> but they're like the greatest rock and roll band that that nobody ever heard of. Is it safe uh, so, to say it's going to be a wild weekend? Good girl. That's one of the NRBQ songs. Very good. Yeah, going to be a wild weekend in the hotel. Live music, panels, um, uh, cosplay, a lot of Disney cosplay always uh, at our shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's low dough admission, 25 bucks in advance for a day of uh, weirdness and uh, entertainment. So go to the website at necomiccons.com uh, for more information, a uh, list of what's going on, and I uh, hope to see you all there. All right. All right. Well, this is very exciting. So why don't we, why don't we get into it? Why don't we like talk a little bit about Disney and your travels and kind of things you've seen and Scott, you want to take it away? Sure. And I just want to add, I mean, you mentioned uh, Antiques Roadshow. So for people who aren't familiar with Antiques Roadshow or, or Gary in general, he oh, is I'm known as the with Antiques Roadshow. Come on. What's that? What's that? Not familiar with Antiques Roadshow. It's the well, best. I would think almost nobody is not familiar with it, but you never know. Just a chance. I just want to point out he's known as the, the king of pop culture. So he, he's an expert in toys and memorabilia. And so he's perfect. I- for, for I got I, I got the gig on Antiques Roadshow because I was doing WBZ radio with David Brudnoy here at at nights. Uh, once a month, I'd be doing people would call in and I knew the value of all this stuff without seeing it. So he kind of called me the king of pop culture because I knew the value of 100,000 worthless objects. <laughs> Well, you made all that useless knowledge very useful in the end. Well, it, it is. It, it's sort of what intrigued me. I mean, I grew up on uh, Walt Disney, uh, Mickey Mouse Club, uh, the Disney TV shows and, and Howdy Doody and Buffalo Bob and all that popular culture uh, and was able to then turn that into my life's work. Um, I did the Antiques Roadshow for 13 seasons and over 80 appearances of 
uh, you know, appraising the wildest and funnest things. So it was a good gig. I, I enjoyed it a lot. But before Antiques Roadshow, I was already doing the Lost in Space cast reunions and Munsters cast reunions and and bringing Adam West around to do shows, you know. And so we had a lot of, you know, lead up to before Antiques Roadshow ever mm-hmm. even happened. So in, including a lot of Disney experiences at the parks and otherwise in memorabilia. That sounds awesome. Sounds like a great career you've had so far. Uh, so we're going to my other options, which was like working at McDonald's is what my guidance <laughs> counselor told me. But anyway, anyways, yeah, we're going to talk about the parks, but first we want to talk a little bit about, you know, Disney merchandising in the beginning, you know, Mickey Mouse became a phenomenon. They had some merchandising, but it really wasn't until 1932 when they, this fellow Kay Kamen came to them and said, we're going to take your merchandising very big. And they started selling watches. It became Mickey Mouse watch became the most popular watch in America. And then that money helped them do Snow White. And tell us a little about the marketing for Snow White, because it was really one of the first movies where they had this expansive marketing. And people think like George Lucas invented it with Star Wars. But this has been around for a long time, going back to, to Snow White. Well, Snow White was the pinnacle of what Kay and Walt had planned. He was merchandising everything starting in 32 with the first catalog, where they were merchandising all of the shorts and they were producing products to support it. Uh, not only products to sell, but promotional materials, which was new. I mean, you didn't go to, the, you wanted the theaters to, to show your movies. You would supply them with a one sheet and some lobby cards. And that was all you do. Well, Walt was supplying them with stuffed animals and other kinds of characters that they would adorn their facilities with. And his team of artists were able to create elaborate displays for this short that was three minutes. that was opening for a movie. And so that was new and unique. And then, Kay said, well, why don't we put this on a cereal box and why don't we turn this into a, uh, you know, each and in uh, jewelry, he would license it to a jewelry manufacturer. This is 33. There was the catalog, the 33 catalog, Kay Kamen's catalog was phenomenal because he probably had over 100 licensees in 33. Um, This is long before, you know, Snow White, you know, was even, I mean, it was realistically snow white was on the drawing board at that point and they were selling merchandise of uh, every character that that disney had donald duck and mickey and and goofy and pluto and then you know uh evolving some of the ancillary characters and then some of the shorts characters so as that was evolving the big play was really ev- uh taking place which was how do you tie all of those licenses together around a big property and make it global? So this is, like you said, way before the Beatles or Elvis or any other entity. I mean, no one else had ever merchandised uh, with the amount of categories, distribution and coordination between stores, manufacturers, theaters, media, uh, and, and realistically, there was no television. There was no 24-hour news cycles. There was no social media. This was all about <clears throat> the distributors getting their their theaters and their local media to cover them in a in a coordinated manner. All of the stories that were written around that appeared in all the local newspapers were all the same. They were in the clipbook that that the 
studio produced and gave to the theaters who then cut out the articles and put them in the newspapers just as is. Same with all the consistency of uh, graphics. So you'd see the Snow White and the dwarves characters in uh, uniformity all the way across all markets. Um, that was something that Walt insisted upon and Kay was able to deliver on. Mm-hmm. And that's where the catalog came out. They said, here are the graphics you can use. And they said, oh, sure, I can make something out of that. You know, And, and, and hundreds of new businesses started from that, you know? And of course, the big ones, Timex and some of the other big companies, Ingersoll Watch and Pens, you know, all these different companies said, wow, that's going to be worth a fortune. My Mickey Mouse watch is selling really good. I'll try Snow White. I'll make eight watches, Snow and all seven dwarves. And they did. So the, you know, it kept growing to that level. Mm-hmm. And then, but somebody had to oversee all that. You know, Walt, he was so concentrating on the art and the films that without Kay Kamen actually overseeing it and then develop, building this network underneath him of merchandisers uh, coordinated with Walt's connections in the theater uh, distribution chain mm-hmm. to make all that happen. It was very complicated. Yeah, and that was a big... not something we can, we couldn't explain <laughs> it all in the next 10 minutes, okay? And that was an important revenue stream for them while they were making Snow White, because it took a long time to make Snow White and they would have had a hard time staying afloat. Well, they were releasing shorts, yeah. yes. Well, you know, Gary, and it's really interesting because we think of like Disney World today and the parks and the movies and all of that is kind of being like a big spider web of things. But really, they were kind of the first to start. This is what you're saying in the 30s, this idea of like not just one product, but many products, you know, fully integrated and kind of getting their getting their paws on people's wallets, which is okay. And um, it's, it's really interesting to kind of hear this history of it, though. It's- and, and if you think about it nowadays with the computers and Internet, it'd be so easy to do. Right. They were doing it on ledger sheets and by mail. And, you know, phones weren't even that, just you know, widespread. Hello, Mabel, get me Andy. You know, no, it wasn't <laughs> that, you know, it was so much more complicated. But diligence and a lot of things slipped through the cracks. You know, that's. You know, things fall off the back of a truck, you know, or something. So, but they still got it done. What What are some of the the most valuable collectibles from that period, or the things that you like the most from that that period? Well, there's two aspects of collectibles from pretty much every period, but from mostly from that period, if you think about it, they're the things that are studio produced in the studio, maquettes, um, you know, art all kinds of great stuff that was actually produced by and for the studio, the displays in the theaters, things like that. Then there's the mass merchandising, the, you know, oh, if you break it, mom will go buy you another one, the the planned obsolescence model. So there's two different levels of that. I mean, I can't even afford any of the things I used to buy in the seventies and eighties. I mean, uh, the prospectus, you know, like you can't find things like that. Just, luckily you know or maquettes you, you look them at the auctions now and they're beyond prices a, a poor man like me could afford you know what, what, what is a maquette 
A maquette is they would sculpt the characters in three dimensions so that the artists, the nine old men, would all have a uniform three-dimensional thing to look at when they wanted to know what the face would look like from the left to the right or above or looking up. So they had them in multiple sizes. And, and so the maquettes, and they made them for everything, you know, like they'd have a whole sculpture department whose job it was to make those things uniforms. And then they want them in different sizes, in different outfits, in different poses. <laughs> so those are like some of the rarest things because they were fragile. And these guys would handle them. You know, they'd be holding it up in the air and looking at it from like underneath to make sure they knew that that nose went out that far over the chin from that angle as they're drawing it. Uh, these are the types of things that are rare. And then there would be all the drawings that they did while they were doing that. Wow. So the archives, the archives are deep in these things. And, and during the 80s and 90s, uh, when Dave Smith was, you know, in charge of the archives, they were out there acquiring as much as they could to get it back for that. And mm-hmm. so that they have a pretty good, you know, handle on the rarities and things get out things that, you know, people made or did or stole, got out, so. <laughs> so what would like something like that be valued at today? Let's say like if, I don't know, what, have any come uh, up recently? Uh, or? I, I haven't checked, but you know, uh, between Hakes Americana and uh, the Hollywood auction, um, you know, they do show up, I, you know, again, research. The internet now changed all that. I don't have to memorize auction results as they happen because right now the auctions happen like on an hourly basis, Fleabay and all that. So it's almost impossible to keep up. So when something comes up and you need to know, you can then go online with, uh, you know, scrapers that'll scrape all those things and give you details. And we have access to all kinds of, knowledge from the internet uh that changes that so i haven't seen anything since maybe uh maybe in 10 years you know uh, but i'm sure that they have come up uh through these online auction sources and can be researched but 10 years ago you know 1930s maquettes were in the 10,000 to 15,000 dollars price range now if a, a a really clean dopey or uh you know which is the most popular character of the seven dwarves or grumpy comes up. Those are going to go for the most money. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, happy or doc is going to go for less. No offense. I yep. like happy. I like happy docs. Um, I, I think maybe if you had a set of them and there are sets that have come up, it's going to bring, bring six figures. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, with the right approach, you know, a, attribution to that, who, who had them, what they use, are they real? You know, mm-hmm. are they restored? You know, all kinds of things. But at this point, the hobby has evolved far beyond it coming out of the closet or the attic or the basement. I mean- So you're not gonna find this at a yard sale is what you're saying? No, you could, you could, if you lived in Burbank, California, or, you know, where the studio was originally, where the nine old men and, and all the, I mean, it's interesting, Philo Barnhart, he's a, you know, a Disney artist. He was, he, for, for 25 years worked at the studios, California, Orlando, and his parents worked with the nine old men. So here it goes back. He's a second generation and he's got a warehouse in California full of stuff. So (laughs) at some point that's going to come on the market. You know, my business has become the three D's 
death, divorce, and downsizing. So you <laughs> just never know when something's going to come into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. So, uh, so those are the early days. Now, when they start doing Disneyland, now they have like 20 years of experience merchandising stuff, right? So we're getting to 1955 and the opening. Did they have a lot of merchandise before the park opened to kind of promote the park? Or was it mostly once the park opened that you had the flood of merchandise? Well, let's go back a few years. Okay. We'll talk about um, what my my uh, uh, treasure, you know, Holy Grail. It's not Holy Grail. Everybody says, Holy Grail, Holy Grail. Well, I had a Holy Grail. I sold it because I had holy bills. Um, <laughs> but the Holy Grail, to me, um, was I owned the original prospectus to Disneyland. So in 1953, Walt uh, wrote, I'm going to build Disneyland. And everyone's like really yeah i'm gonna buy these orange groves and i'm gonna build this and do this and he wrote up this prospectus that said what he's going to do and he had two maps created of the land he was go- he bought and everything else he had to go borrow five million dollars to build it so he and herb ryman and um they they built this prospectus and they made three of them they a little manila folder kind of like with uh, nine pages and two maps in it, hand typed on paper saying, you know, I'm going to build Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. I mean, detailed uh, Lilliputian land, places that never existed. Um, but this was his plan. And he had to, he went to New York with his brother, Roy. They went to New York to borrow the money to get investors. They went to three banks and left these three prospectuses at these banks. They left New York with no money. And nobody knew what happened to the prospectuses until I got the one from an antique dealer who bought it at a yard sale in Long Island in a stack of papers. And he didn't know what it was. It just had some rub on letters on the front that said Disneyland. He didn't know what it was. And when I bought it from it, it was in an antique show and it was a pile of stuff I bought from him for a hundred dollars. Wow. So I, I just figured I got it for nothing. It belonged with me. And I held on to it for 25 years just to make sure it was the only one. I mean, how do you know it's the only one unless you hold on to it long enough? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I took it to show Dave Smith, the archivist for Disney at one point at the Disneyana conventions in the 90s. And I said, Dave, is this what I think it is? And he started sweating, honestly, right there holding it, almost shaking and sweating. He goes, do you know what this is? I says, well, it looks like you know, the prospectus to Disneyland, but I don't know. What is it? He goes, that's what it is. I says, well, obviously you must have a copy in there. He goes, no, we just have six of these nine pages and these two maps on microfilm, but we don't own the whole nine page thing anymore. So he asked if I, if I'd sell it. And I said, no, um, I, I wanted, it was my Holy grail. I had something <laughs> no Disney archives didn't have. Why would I sell it? So I, I loved it. Well, we scanned the whole thing, photographed it, you know, high quality so that we would have a copy. And a few years ago, I sold it uh, through the uh, through auction and it was bought by an evil person who I was so sad got it. So uh. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, so then anyway, the, the, the point was, is that um, after it was sold, we actually released the, uh, the digital copy of it so that anybody who wanted to see it on Boing Boing could actually go there. And if you go on Boing Boing and you look up the 1953 prospectus for Disneyland, 
there it is in high res with full detail so anybody can go and see it. But at that point, <coughs> Walt came is on his way back and uh, didn't have the money. And then the Bass Brothers out of Florida, I mean, out of Texas, contacted him and said they would back him only if they worked with ABC television to create a TV show that they could merchandise. So that Walt's whole merchandise thing, here's where it all ties back. In order to build Disneyland, he had to do the Disneyland TV show for ABC because the Bass Brothers had a huge amount of investment in ABC. ABC was struggling against NBC and CBS, whole big three networks at the time, you know. Um, so Walt agreed that he'd take it as a loan, but produce the show that generated revenue. And that's where the whole merchandise, Disneyland and Davy Crockett show realistically saved Walt and the company when in the 50s when animation was not the box office bonanza it had been in Snow White and Pinocchio you know mm. it just after the war people were more realistic there was a whole different thought path animation was fun and everything else but he didn't have the nine old men he didn't have a bunch of stories he could take and and do and build but the the part, the family adventure for the generation that was growing up on television and serial, that was what he saw as uh, the best way to be able to tell stories and sell merch. And that's that story. How's that one? <laughs> that's that's terrific story. No, all right. I got to ask you, Yari. So I love yard sales. I love, I find a little treasure. I bring it home. I Google it. I'm like, oh, look at this. I paid $4. It's worth $32. I'm very excited. Tell me what was going on when you got this pile of paper for a hundred bucks and you look through and you think you like, what was that like? I didn't think twice about it for at least a week or two. I mean, it was like when you, it, when in my business, I go and I, I look and I make piles. This has got to be probably 1989, 1990. So realistically, I bought this pile of paper just to get the Adams Family gum card box. That was it <laughs> for the best price because that was the, the most valuable thing I thought in that pile. And in order to get a discount on it, you make a stack of things, you know? So you put things together in a stack and you ask for a deal. Well, when I threw that in the stack, I just thought it was going to be fun to read and, you know, had it's probably some kid's scrapbook that they did for a project and in high school that's really what it looked like like you know i'm going this was my trip to disneyland that's absolutely what i thought it was and okay cool some kids disneyland trip i got it free in with the adams family box and a bunch of other paper now the guy who sold it all to him he still doesn't know i've never told <laughs> him because he would just go ballistic still 30 years later he'd still go ballistic you know you did what no but anyway I sold the Adams family box for the hundred dollars and now everything else was free. So I didn't think about it, threw it in the box with a bunch of other stuff that I thought was cool. Just turnover, you know? So when I finally started looking at it a couple of weeks later, Oh, look, it's not some kid's report. Oh, look, a map. Wow. I didn't even open it to the back. And so it became discovery. And then it probably took, three years before I figured out what it was and another year or so until or, or so till Dave saw it, you know, so process of discovery, okay. research, education, and 
That's great. That's great. Now it's it's hard to top that one as a memorabilia for <laughs> Disneyland. But what are some other you know uh, well-known memorabilia for Disneyland? Like I look online, I see a lot of maps. I see the ticket. How about the tickets for opening day? Are those worth a lot of money? Those hard to come by. Again, it's supply and demand. Um, the, the demand meets the supply and vice versa. So the price has been stagnant on those for many, many years. It peaked out when the generation, I call it the, uh, the, the uh, nostalgia curve. People exist on a nostalgia curve. You know, when you're like 13 uh, to, a, to 16 years old, you, you know, love your pop culture, you embrace it, you absorb it, you part of it. And then when you're 16, you would, you would uh, discover girls or boys and your life changes. And therefore all that stuff sits in mom's house until she tells you, you either have to take it or I'm garage selling it or throwing it away. And you either take it and store it. And then 20 years later, now you're 33 to 36 years old. If you don't have it, you want to buy back your youth. That's the way people are. Oh, I'm going to share it with my kids and all that stuff. Or if you saved it, now you're pulling it out and you're now buying more. Because now I'm going to not only buy that. Look, I've got these rare collectibles. Wow, Masters of the Universe is popular again. You know, uh, So whatever it is, that cycle continues. And then there becomes a point where it drops and the demand starts dropping because everybody that wants one has one. And people are dying off or selling off. And now there's market there's more on the market which levels out the value so nobody's going to sell it for less if they bought it at the peak they're going to try and keep it at the peak it ain't going to keep going up mm -hmm. so an original ticket could sell for you know opening day ticket been reproduced beyond belief so how do you know it's a real one well if it's mint perfect condition it's probably not a real one <laughs> <laughs> you know because it's going to be handled. It's had to have been handled. Nobody had those tickets. There was no bulk leftover tickets like Beatles concerts, you know, mm -hmm. or Woodstock tickets. You know, I, at one point I could have gotten you thousands of Woodstock tickets unused, never handled because the ticket outlets never sent them back when they didn't sell them after the show. So there's thousands of them, but you never see opening day Disney. In fact, the tickets were so few because most of the people didn't know opening day was happening. It was kind of an internal and thing like that. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it's totally different than opening day. Now, over the time, they had the tickets with all the ride tickets in them, A, B, C, D, E tickets, you know, and those types of things. So you, you often see the ticket books. Disney will still buy those, give you those, the value of those books in 50 1950s dollars <laughs> so you, you know it's like yeah that was 12 dollars. we'll put your 12 dollars towards your 250 dollar ticket today thank you you know it's like what where if as a collector a, a, a full book will sell for 50 60 bucks you know and unused where most of them all the good the, the best ride tickets are gone because you know nobody i mean you see a lot of a rides you know and you don't see many e-tickets left you know Mm -hmm. because the e-tickets were the better rides and harder to get on longer longer waits so all that stuff but then disney was selling what what's interesting is most people don't know or they do know is that uh, at disneyland walt needed merchandise during that first time period now he had all these manufacturers who had been producing products for 
licensed products all over the world. So he called upon them to stock the stores. So he did get a ton of his licensees to produce product for the opening of Disneyland. But what he had in huge quantities that he had to pay zero for were animation cells. He went to the studio and they had, you know, you know, 200 cells per minute, you know, hand drawn, hand done of every character of every movie. There they are. Walt says, chop them up, put them in mats, put them out, $5. He sold a million of them over the course of the first five years for five bucks. I mean, now some of those sales, like I sold a Jiminy Cricket one from Pinocchio that was sold at the at the corner, at the art corner um, in Disneyland for $5. It's over 1250 bucks. So these are the types of things that are still in people's homes and you'll see it. Now, what happened is they're not the full cell, you know, that was used. They cut it to fit in a mat. And then they sometimes would put an original background, sometimes just a blank background, and sometimes a manufactured background that they would print up, you know, of, of a, a backyard or a forest. And there it is. And they put everybody against that, you know, all the Bambi cells, you know, blah, 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 you know, like, so those were a treasure that could be found at Disneyland when it opened. And, and those are kind of, you know, true art. I mean, it's fun to look at a ticket stub and that can have a nice aesthetic value, but you're talking about something that was hand-drawn by artists. It's really kind of a cultural touchstone and what an exciting thing to have. By the nine old men. I mean, the original yeah. animators of the, of the day. <sighs> That's pretty amazing stuff. Now you see those a lot in the parks now too, and even online with the, the more recent movies and things, are those ever going to be valuable? Are those like mass produced, not even like the original print? Are they like copies of, of the prints? Or So there's a difference in the printing process between a hand-drawn work of art and a printed work of art from a hand-drawn thing. So all the new products that you see are digitally produced, printed onto cell paper, cell material to look like a cell but since the 90s when the disney stores opened and they started the entire serious cell uh, business you know they would have original animation cell one of those and then they have a serial cell of the same thing and have 150 of those so you know and and you couldn't afford the original cell because they'd mark it at $12,900 when it was worth three grand easy. Yeah. Uh, but now it's 12,000. Now it would sell for that much. If you bought it, then it'd be worth what you, now what you paid then, but that would help them sell hundreds of serious cells, limited edition, only 150 of these. And it's a numbered out of 150. Oh, you don't like that pose. We have a different pose over here. We have 150 of those too. And the, if that, market uh along with the pin market you know pretty much is the bi disney business model plush and you know other things really don't matter animation art in all formats and um and pins that's where the money is <laughs> mm -hmm. And that wraps up part one of our interview with Gary Summers. All right. But anyway, all all I can say is come to my Comic Con, Northeast Comic Con. Uh, July 2, 3, and 4 at the Boxborough Regency Hotel and Conference Center. Guaranteed, not boring, and free parking, all in one place. Uh, low dough admission. Uh, come and have fun, buy stuff, meet people. So, again, that wraps up this episode. Thanks, everybody. And we will see, see you real soon. soon.
Aloha. That was the best one we did yet. Yeah. <laughs>